Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am excited to talk to David Wheaton. He's on our studio line. But I love this passage in Exodus 3 where Moses says, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, here's a biblical character I can really identify with. We're going to continue our discussion with David on how uh, epic Exodus displays the awesome God, we're going to cover uh, chapters 3 and 4 with a little review on chapter 2, so get your Bibles out and your pens in hand. David, welcome back. It's good to be with you today, Bill. Yeah. So let's uh, let's touch base. I know in a week uh, Wimbledon starts, but let's not talk about that yet, because <laughs> we could get distracted once again, because last time we got way off our, uh, our target. So let's just go back to uh, brushing up a little bit on Exodus 2. Yeah, well, I think the most important points from last time uh, had to do with the fact that we see in Exodus 2, we see Moses, who's the main character in Exodus, being born, placed by the Nile, in the Nile River by his mother. And think, why would she do that? Well, because the Pharaoh had commanded that all the, the Hebrew, the Jewish children, boys, be killed because they were very afraid of the, the Jews outnumbering them and taking over Egypt. So there was literally a death warrant out and all the, the, the Jewish babies, boy babies in Egypt. And then just through God's amazing sovereignty, um, Pharaoh's daughter happens to be walking along the, the Nile. It's very hard to hide a baby, as anyone knows who's had one. They're always crying. <laughs> Here's the crying of the baby in the reeds, yeah. takes this baby boy out. And uh, Moses' sister is watching from nearby and immediately runs up and said, you know, should I should I find a, a, a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby, uh, knowing that she's going to pick his own her own mother? Uh, and the Pharaoh's daughter says, sure. But Pharaoh's daughter has pity on this child. She'd end up adopting him into her, his own family. So this is a very unlikely, just, you know, mil- billion to one scenario of a situation where, where Moses is, is born and is not going to be raised amongst his own people and his own family, basically, because they're in slavery. They're being oppressed in Egypt by by the Egyptians. But he's going to grow up in the most privileged luxury you could possibly imagine uh, in Pharaoh's own palace. I mean, talk about going from the, the slave pen to being in, you know, you, you can't even imagine what you know Pharaoh's palace, what his life was like is top of the top of the food chain, basically. Highly educated Moses would be. Meanwhile, his own people, uh, the Jews, are under forced labor. But he doesn't forget his own people, Bill, as we talked about last time. He's, he has this sensitivity to injustice. Uh, he wants to help people. And as he, gets, as he grows up and he gets to be 40 years old, there was these three phases of Moses' life. And after those first 40 years, he goes out to see his people and to see what the oppression is like. And he sees an Egyptian beating one of his Jewish brothers. Uh, not real brothers, but you know, Jewish brothers, mm-hmm. and he's outraged at this injustice, and he, he actually strikes down the Egyptian and kills him and hides his body. The next day, he goes out and sees two, two of his own brethren, two Jews fighting each other, and he tries to break it up, and they, they say, hey, who made you a, a judge and a ruler over us? Are you going to kill one of us like you killed the Egyptian? 
And so he has to flee the country. Pharaoh is now going to try to to kill him for murdering an Egyptian. And again, we see Pharaoh, uh, we see Moses, he leaves the country 200 miles away now in the land of Midian, and he comes across these these women who are who are shepherdesses and the the male shepherds are driving them away from the well. And again, same impulse that Moses had to help people to to rectify injustice, which is going to come in very handy as he leads his own people out of slavery and oppression in Egypt. He sees them, he helps the women, he waters their their their, their flocks and so forth. And then the next stage of his 40-year life, there's this 40-year exile, you could call it, from Egypt, begins in the land of Midian. All right. Thank you for that recap. Now let's uh, move on uh, into chapters 3 and 4. Uh, how has God now, he has not forgotten his covenant with Israel. Right. Well, you think this is a super unlikely scenario here. You know, here you have the, the God's people, the Jewish people in Egypt in complete abject slavery and oppression. They're doing hard labor. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. But as we talked about for weeks and months, uh, you know, leading up to today in the book of Genesis, there was this promise, this covenant that God made with first with Abraham and then with Isaac and then with Jacob and then repeated it to, to Jacob's son, Joseph. And, you know, hundreds of years have gone by now, but God has not forgotten this covenant that he's, he's going to give to his chosen people land, seed, and blessing. And, and it says, I think this is at the end of chapter two, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. Now notice this verse, verse 24, it's so interesting. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Of them. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God took notice. In other words, we can be sure that even in our life, sometimes we feel like God is not paying attention. God's not watching. How does he not see what's going on in my life? All these troubles I have, but we can be sure that God hears, he remembers, he sees, and he takes notice. And that's exactly what he does. Now, we have no idea what took so long. You know, why did God wait so long? But God has purposes beyond our purposes, plans higher than our plans, thoughts higher than our thoughts. So we can't, we can't question that because we can't understand sometimes the mind and the purposes and the plans of God. But we can know that God does see, he does remember, he does hear, and he does take notice. And that's what's taking place in the story. No matter how many hundred years, hundreds of years this is, after that initial, initial covenant was made with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God hasn't forgotten. He's going to bring about that. He's going to bring about that covenant, and it's going to come in short order as Moses leads his people out of Egypt. I love being reminded of that, David. He heard, he remembered, he saw, he noticed. That's right. Yeah, that's very comforting. So why why is Moses in an, kind of an unlikely situation to lead the Jews out of Egypt? Well, if you think about it, you know, you think, oh, this is kind of, we know where this is going. You know, Moses gets plucked out of the Nile. He's raised in the palace. He's Jewish. Oh, now he's going to be the perfect person uh, to lead the people, the Jewish people, out of slavery, out of Egypt, into the promised land. Well, all of a sudden, for 40 years now, he's not nowhere near Egypt. He's nowhere near his own people. Uh, his own people don't even trust him. They were saying, are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? In other words, he, he's in exile out of his the country where he was raised, and he's in exile from the people that he's going to lead. He's a shepherd. 
uh, a couple hundred miles away. No one even knows where he is. Uh, he has some obscure job in an obscure place. He's pasturing the flock of his father-in-law. Now, you have to keep in mind that Moses was like a prince of Egypt. This is not the this is not the point of the story, but there's no doubt that Moses probably, having been raised the way he did, probably sometime in the middle of the desert in Midian, 200 miles away, in the middle of nowhere, probably said to himself, now, what exactly am I doing here? I've been super highly educated. I could be a ruler in Egypt. I could be enjoying the splendors of Egypt. You know, what am I doing here when my people are back in Egypt in slavery? But the point is, is God was preparing Moses, not only at this time, this time of exile, these 40 years from the age of 40 to 80, God was preparing Moses, not just during this time, but also from the time of his birth, his youth, his manhood, then in this exile in Midian, to be the leader he was going to choose, the perfect leader. Maybe this was a time of humbling in his life. God was working in the things in Moses' life to do and form the character that Moses would need to go on this epic exodus that was just going to be incredibly trial-filled. I mean, this was going to be a very, very difficult task, and God was preparing his man to be able to do that, even when his man was nowhere near the people he would lead out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. God prepares us to do the roles he has for us, even when we are in unlikely scenarios in life. Yeah, and it's always good to do a little digging, because in chapter 2 it talks about Ruel, and then that would be his future father-in-law. And then in chapter 3, it talks about his father-in-law, Jethro. And you're thinking, huh, how did that get moved around? And it really is Ruel and Jethro are the same person. It is the same person. Yeah. So it's always good to hear those little tidbits as you uh, are reading the chapters. All right. Let's, uh, let's get to the big moment when, when Moses is <laughs> talking to a burning bush. Really? Yeah, this is yeah, this is this is like out of the the, the 10 commandments, right? Totally. When Charlton Heston's yes. there and you know the, the the 10 commandments, I would encourage listeners to see it. It's not, you know, exactly perfectly follow the story of scripture, but it's it's fairly close. This is back in a day when I think Hollywood was a lot more faithful to the text and obviously they are now. So they actually show that scene in the movie and it's interesting, but you know, here we find it in Exodus chapter uh, 3. Um, where the, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. Now, keep in mind, he's out in the desert, the wilderness, you know, just a mountainous, deserty area. And all of a sudden, he sees his bush on fire, and it says, yet the bush was not consumed. And so Moses said, I'm like, like anyone would say, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And so in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, Moses looked at it, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near here. This is a well-known line in the Bible. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And then he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Bill, that is always the reaction when we encounter the living God. We hide our face. We cannot even look at him because he is so holy. And so this is the one attribute of God, God's holiness, that is the sum of all his other attributes. You know, God is love. He's a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of judgment. He has all these different attributes. But the one attribute above all others that describes God and makes him different for us, we may be made in the likeness of God, but God's holiness, his perfect 
perfectly sinlessness is what makes him different. As a matter of fact, the word holy in the description of God is the only description of God in Scripture that is repeated three times. God is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 but it does say it's holy, holy, holy. And this is really the reason why, you know, it puts us at odds with God. We are we are sinners, and says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who does good, not even one. They have all turned aside. They have all become unprofitable. We've each gone our own way. This is why. This is the, 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 the reason of life, why the big question of life is how as can we, made in the image of God, invaluable in the sight of God, how can we, we're sinners, how can we be made right with this holy God? And this is the whole point of the whole Bible. The whole Bible says, here's God, the creator, this perfect, holy God, and here's man who was created in the image of God, but is sinful and separated from God. And this is the point of Scripture, is that God would send a Redeemer, where God would send his Son to reconcile this difference. God's Son would go to the cross as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for the sin, the sin, the, the sinfulness of mankind, pay the penalty we deserve to pay, rise from the dead, and, and, and commands us, repent and believe in me as the only way you can be right with God. Trust in Christ's work, not your own works. And this is incredibly pictured here when Moses encounters God's holiness in this burning bush. Yeah, it's killing me to take a break. I don't even want to take a break. I just want to keep going. But we will take a short one and be right back with David Wheaton. We're continuing our series on Exodus, how epic Exodus displays the awesome God. Be right back. says my guest is David Wheaton. And if you uh, head over to the christianworldview.org, you can learn all about David and his podcast and his radio show and his um, books and writing. He's got a show that airs on Saturday, and it's excellent. I never miss it. All right, David, let's get back to Moses. How, I mean, how does God call Moses to lead this exodus? Well, it's an amazing call. But before I get to that, I think I should add one more thing about just the burning bush. Okay. As I was just thinking about that. And it's this, you know, you look at a burning bush. I mean, come on, people might be listening today and thinking, really, a burning bush? All this say this, to be a follower of Christ, you must believe in the supernatural. And there, there's, no, there's no natural explanation for how this bush was burning. Uh, it wasn't, you know, fireflies, you know, all in the midst of it and, you know, making it appear burning. No, this was a burning bush, the scripture says, that wasn't being consumed. Uh, you know, the supernatural basically are occurrences which have no natural explanation for them. So, for instance, the first uh, uh, sentence in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that's just a miracle. It's just supernatural. You, we can't reproduce that in a scientific lab. You can't, you know, observe and reproduce that. At the same rate, there's no other reasonable explanation than for creation, than God creating the heavens and the earth. Because the the other side who says, you know, there's only natural things in the world, there's only—everything can be explained through natural means, certainly cannot explain how we got here, because what happened at the very beginning? 
you know, nothing doesn't turn into something by itself and explode by itself into everything. That's impossible. We know that scientifically. So, but we do know that the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth. This has to be believed by faith. It's just we serve this incredibly big God who does these supernatural, miraculous things. Jesus Christ, another example. He was born of a virgin. That's not a natural occurrence. That cannot be re reproduced in a scientific lab. He performed miracles. He raised people from the dead. He, he, he fed 5,000 people with a few loaves. He healed people of d diseases on the spot of being lame. He rose himself from the dead. And so miracles, though not common necessarily throughout history, they happen. God does orchestrate miracles, and that's what this was here. God speaks from a burning bush in a way that just shows he's above and beyond this natural world that we live in. But there is supernatural, and Christians have to believe that really to be a Christian, because you're believing in this supernatural God who has a supernatural son who came and performed supernatural miracles to prove who he was. Yeah, that's a great reminder. So let's get back to yeah. uh, Moses's, uh, the way God called him to, to lead. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, so from the burning bush, yeah. when this supernatural occurrence is taking place, he, God says, speaks out of the burning bush, says, I, I, have, I have heard the cry yeah. of the sons of Israel. It's come to me. I have seen the oppression uh, with which the Egyptians are oppressing them, he says. And then he says to Moses, therefore, come now. Then he says this, I will send you. I will send you, not someone else. I will send you. This is God speaking to Moses out of a burning bush. I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Here, here's the commission, really, to yeah. Moses. And by the way, it's notable, Moses wasn't looking himself, as far as we know, to go back to Egypt to lead the people out of Egypt. He was to lead the the Jews out of Egypt. He had been a Midian now for 40 years. Right. He had married two sons. He's a shepherd. As far as we know, uh, Moses probably thinking about his family back home, but there's no intention in Moses' mind that I'm the one that needs to lead the people. out. He didn't know what to do. This was God's call uh, on Moses' life. Yeah. I will send you, he says. And God tells them he is going to deliver the Jews from the power of the Egyptians and bring them up to the promised land. And how is he going to do it? Is he going to do it through Moses going back there and persuasively going back to his old, quote, family in the Egyptian palace and saying, hey, look, you know, this oppression going on, you can't do this. You need to let my people go. That's not going to be that. Is it going to be militarily? Is is Moses going to be a military leader and go back and kind of raise up the Jewish? No, they don't have any power. They have no, they have no weapons. There's no way they're going to be able to stand up to Egypt. The way he's going to do it is just what we talked about at the beginning of this, this, this second segment here. He's going to do it supernaturally. He's going to do it through these amazing miracles, through these plagues, that it's going to be like one after the other. Let my people go. Right. He's going to perform miracles. Pharaoh's not going to let them go until basically all of Egypt is destroyed because Pharaoh's hard-heartedness in not letting the people go. Mm -hmm. So 40 years in Midian probably has a tennis membership at the Midian Country Club. I mean, he's not going he's anywhere. He's settled in. He, oh, no. Totally. So the human side would say, I bet Moses has some objections to God's call on his life. He he does. You know, and, and you think maybe he shouldn't, though, because after all, Bill, if you think if it were you or me standing there in front of a burning bush and God is speaking to you out of the bush, you would think kind of in logically or maybe in your right mind that, gee, if God's speaking to me and he tells me to go do something and he's promising that I'm going to be successful doing it, well, there's no objection, right? I should just do it. But 
that's not our natural response so much of the time. God does speak to us right through his word. We have the literal words of God in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The Bible claims to be the word of God. It's an Aaron infallible. It's all these things. God, uh, Jesus prayed to his father, speak to them. He says, your, your word is truth. Um, all scripture is inspired by God. So we have the word of God in our hands, and yet we, we see what it clearly says. And a lot of times we have objections to it. Yeah. And that's what happens here with Moses. He, in this, in this chapter three, I think in the chapter four, he brings up five objections to God's call. And he has this conversation with God in, in this burning bush and just in summary, the five objections that we can go through each of them, but it's, it's, you know, who am I that you're choosing me to do this? Number two, what am I going to say to this people, my, my people, about when I get back to them that who sent me? They're not going to believe me. Number three, what if they don't listen to me or believe me? Number four, well, I'm not a very good speaker. I'm not very eloquent. I can't, I'm, I'm not your guy. And number five, Moses basically says, please send someone else. And unfortunately, we often have these objections when we read the Word of God that this really isn't for me, I can't do this. We look at our own perception of our own abilities or strengths and weaknesses, and we think, we just can't do it. We're looking at it the wrong way. Instead of trusting God and looking to His strength, we tend to focus on our own you know, lack of strength or inadequacies or perception of self. And this goes back so well to what Paul had the same thing uh, in 2 Corinthians 12 in the New Testament, Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. You remember that particular passage in 2 mm-hmm. Corinthians 12? He said, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from becoming proud. And concerning this, Paul says, I, impl- I asked the Lord three times to take away this, this bothersome thing that was, you know, I was a physical ailment. It was something wrong with, with Paul, and he prayed about it. And God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. You know, to which Paul then responds, well, really? If that's the case, well, most gladly, Paul says, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm going to be well content with weaknesses. I'm going to be fine with insults, insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, because when I am weak, then I am strong, because when I'm weak, God gives me his grace. And this is the, the, the great lesson from these objections, which we'll, I guess we'll have to get into next time. Yeah. But the point is that through these objections, God is saying, yeah, you are weak, Moses. You, you can't do this, but I'm going to do it for you. And that's how we need to approach Scripture as well, to realize our own weaknesses, but God is so much greater. He gives the grace, the supernatural power to do his will. And we need to trust in that rather than our own perceived abilities. Yeah, it's a great cliffhanger, David, because when we— uh talk next time, we will answer uh, exactly how God did answer Moses' five objections, and it'll be great. So thank you so much for uh, setting the stage, and we'll, uh, we'll carry on in two weeks. Enjoyed it as always, Bill. As always. Thank you, David. Thank you. Yep, David Wheaton has been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org. You can learn all kinds of amazing things about David and his career, and his radio show, and his books, and his writing, and I'm always delighted to have him as a guest on the show as he's a good friend. We'll be right back with Marshall Siegel.
Mr. Marshall Siegel is in my studio. He's a writer and managing editor at DesiringGod.org. And he is a graduate of Bethlehem College and Seminary. Lives right here in Minneapolis. Because if you didn't live in Minneapolis, you probably wouldn't be here in the studio. I'm putting all this together. Well, I'm sure glad that I do and that I'm here today. Thanks for having me back. So I want to talk about forgiveness today. You've written a great piece on forgiveness is spiritual warfare that intrigued me. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about forgiveness. I've done a fair amount of thinking about it over the last year, both the wonder that God would forgive us, which we know, any of us who follow Christ and profess to be a Christian, we know that that's true. But there are wonders there that we still need to uncover, and we will be uncovering into eternity about about the scandal of a holy God forgiving people like me, like us. But then also that that article is, is more focused on forgiving one another. And this particular text in, in 2 Corinthians just popped with new insights for me in the last year, really relevant for all of our significant relationships. Say more. I, I love when you reference Scripture and then say I something really popped. I want to know what popped. Yeah, so 2 Corinthians 2 is the, the chapter that inspired that Forgiveness is Spiritual Warfare article. And the verse that was familiar to me and may be familiar to some, maybe not to others, maybe you've heard language like this, but Paul says in verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. That's got my attention. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be ignorant oh. of Satan's designs. I don't want to be outwitted oh, by him. Nor do I. Yeah. And, and there's, there's all kinds of things to pull out of there. So just to be reminded that Satan is incredibly clever. He's not dumb. Never underestimate him. Exactly. He's way smarter than you are. Exactly. Right? Right. And so I've heard this in all kinds of contexts, uh, beware of being outwitted by Satan or beware of being ignorant of his designs, how he works, his schemes. What was new for me as I read it is the verse before it. Let me read it. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. This is Paul talking. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that, and now verse 11, we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. So when Paul says we're not, we won't be outwitted by Satan, we're not ignorant of his designs, what specifically is he talking about? He's specifically talking about forgiveness. He's saying what Satan wants, his scheme, how he outwits you is to get you to hold on to bitterness. Yikes. is to get you to hold a grudge. So that means forgiveness, Paul says, and he says it, forgive, he uses the word like four or five times in that verse before. Forgiveness is an act of spiritual warfare against Satan. How do we outwit Satan? We forgive one another. That just blew my mind. I just yeah. I had never thought of it. There, now there, Satan has a lot of other schemes, and the right. Bible talks about those. But in that particular verse, in that particular paragraph, what he's saying is, beware of letting Satan convince you not to forgive one another or to hold a grudge or to hold on to bitterness. Mm-hmm. Oh, you got my curiosity way, way high right now. I'm wondering if listeners would be willing to text in, are you holding a grudge right now that you know of? So text the word grudge and that would say yes. Just text the word grudge. I'm just curious if people will be willing to text that word over, which would indicate 
Yep, I'm holding a grudge. 877-933-2484. We'll do a little straw poll at the end of, at the end of this half hour. And grudge may be the kind of word that everyone runs from. You know, you, it's the kind of word that everybody can see in others and despise in others, but but it's hard to identify it in yourself. Because no, we all have blind spots. So, so maybe another way to come at the same question would be, who in your life is the hardest person for you to forgive? Yeah. Could be someone today, some kind of interaction at work or at home, uh, in, your, in your family, that you just know this person, the way that they are, their particular weaknesses, their particular besetting sins, just consistently offends you or hurts you in ways that are really challenging to forgive. Or it could be something in your past. It could be something from a long time ago that you're holding on to. But we all have people. I mean, I think for a lot of people, you can identify the person or, or, or series of people who it's hardest for you to forgive. Yeah, but the word grudge is an interesting word because for, in some ways it feels like it's soft and it's something I can have in my back pocket if I need it. But not forgiving somebody, that's a whole different order for a Christian, but a, a grudge is, I think, something that people can justify on some level. Yeah, I, I can, I can they, hear they that. They shouldn't, right? Right. They shouldn't, yeah. but they can. Right. Yeah, it can feel like it's not spiritual or sinful to hold right. on to some pain yeah. if somebody legitimately hurts you. I got I mean, a little I, grudge against that guy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I could hear that for sure. You know, just to give a, put a little another verse to it from the same the same kind of theme is Revelation 12.10. So, so do we see other pictures of Satan using this particular scheme or, or outwitting people in this particular way? And Revelation 12 calls him the accuser, the accuser of the brothers, it says. And it says he accuses them day and night before our God. So what's the opposite of forgiveness? It's accusing. It's, it's holding something over. It's, it's hurling someone's sins back at them. And Satan does that day and night. He never stops doing that. He mm-hmm. never stops taking my sin and hurling it before God's throne to say, he's disqualified. Whoa. You cannot love him. You cannot forgive him. You are a holy God. Um, he's gone. And, and how does God respond? He sends Jesus. <laughs> he sends his own son yeah. so that when Satan's accusations hur- are hurled up against the throne— they fall flat. Yeah. I giggle because the answer is so perfect. Yeah. There's nothing more perfect than Jesus coming to forgive. Okay, the grudge line's lighting up, getting lots of grudges. So this is a, this is a sensitive topic. Right. We've hit a nerve. And if he's an accuser, then you can imagine you can watch him, almost watch him watch the cross. And what a horrifying event. What a nightmare event that is yeah. uh, for him to watch our sins be nailed to the cross, washed away by the blood, and then all the more horrifying to see Jesus rise from the dead three, three days later. I mean, forgiveness is Satan's sworn enemy. It contradicts his existence. He's an accuser. Forgiveness defies Satan's life work. That's how powerful forgiveness is against our, our enemy. And, that, and that's one of the things that need, people need to be reminded in these relationships. So you think holding a grudge, no big deal. I mean, you have to be reminded our battle is not against flesh and blood. That's what a grudge is. A, a grudge is a flesh and, flesh and blood battle. And Ephesians 6 says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the, that's the primary battle, the war of our lives. And mm-hmm. forgiveness is, the, is one of the, the most powerful weapons God, God has given us in that, yeah. that war against him. Yeah, you're too young to be this wise. Well, I hope I learn how to forgive more. I mean, these truths have been digging deeper into my soul mm-hmm. over the last year, and I sure want them to bear more and more fruit Marshall in my Se- relationships. Marshall Siegel wrote in his article at DesiringGod.org, and the article is entitled Forgiveness is Spiritual Warfare, and he writes this. I already lost it. For Christians, though, forgiveness is an act of peacemaking purchased and made possible by the cross. An act of peacemaking. That's what forgiveness is and how important it is to do. Lots of people holding grudges, so we need to come up with a strategy for getting unstuck from being in a grudge. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's, that, that line is inspired, I think, by Ephesians 2. Jesus breaks down the wall of hostility. He's talking there specifically about Jews and Gentiles, but, but I think we're meant to see in that that, that the blood of Jesus can break down any wall of hostility between people. Shall I read it? Yes, that'd be great. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Exactly. And so in a, into relationships where we may have sought vengeance, we're now freed by Jesus to, to pursue peace. And that's because that's, that's how he reacts to us. I mean, he, he was justified to pursue vengeance against us, wholly justified to do that. But he didn't. Instead, he came and, and uh, his broken body, his spilled blood purchased our peace so that we could be peacemakers. Mm-hmm. And every act of peacemaking is, is another glimpse. It's another arrow at Satan. It's another glimpse of the victory that Jesus won at the cross. I love this line too, Marshall. Forgiveness is hostility to Satan because he breeds hostility and despises peace. Yikes. Yeah. And why that's so helpful to, to get into some of these verses and really try to understand what is God trying to tell me about forgiveness is that I think we think of forgiveness in pretty small terms. Somebody says something that was hurtful to us. Maybe they meant it to be hurtful. Maybe they didn't. And we extend forgiveness. And it's just a, a transaction that largely we think is the right thing to do, but we, but we don't have a picture of what's happening at the spiritual level, what's happening when we do that. And it's something grander, more beautiful. I mean, it's supernatural whenever it happens. And so when we have an opportunity to forgive, it's not just that we should do the right thing in that moment, but it's we have, we've been given an opportunity to fight back evil, to, be, to, to, uh, to exercise hostility against Satan. It's an, a remarkable opportunity. It's painful. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not painful. I'm not saying that it's not difficult to work through. But forgiveness, when, when we pursue forgiveness in relationships— it's, it's an evidence that God is in us, that we belong to God, that he's in us, and that he's working through us to accomplish what he wants to in the world. And you also say Jesus calls us to forgive not just once, but tirelessly. That's not always easy, Marshall. 
Yeah, that's straight from Jesus. So that's, I get it. that's just lands on me like a ton <laughs> I, of bricks. I know. Pay attention to yourselves. He says, Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It's interesting. One of the things I've wrestled with over the last year is, can we forgive someone who doesn't want forgiveness? Great point. No and repentance. The more that I've wrestled with it, and like this verse, these two verses in particular have maybe been the, the most helpful. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So it doesn't say forgive him, it says rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and then and turns to you seven times, so again, he's turning, he's repenting, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So the main reason I wanted to bring that text up was just to say seven times in a day. So <laughs> if, if the person that's hardest for you to forgive is someone you live with, very well could be seven times in the day. Um, and he's saying if they turn and say, I repent, if they turn back to you seven each time, then forgive him. You're, you're demanded to forgive him. He says elsewhere, Matthew 6, if you don't forgive him, your father won't forgive you. So if you don't forgive him, that's evidence that you have not fully received yet the forgiveness of sins. But if he seven times, if he if he turns to you, repent him. So, um, so on that question of if, if someone doesn't seek repentance, do you forgive? I, I think... The, the biblical call is to be ready to forgive, to not withhold forgiveness where it is sought uh, if, as, as much as it depends on you. So to not carry the bitterness, not carry the grudge, but to be ready, even eager. I want to forgive you is the kind of language the Bible I think would use mm-hmm. in those circumstances. Marshall Siegel is my guest. He's a staff writer at DesiringGod.org. The article that he wrote is called Forgiveness is Spiritual Warfare. It is available at DesiringGod.org. If you would so like to have a copy in your own possession for free, you just head right over there. Type in Forgiveness is Spiritual Warfare. You'll get the whole article. Take a little break and we'll be right back. Marshall Siegel from DesiringGod.org. All right, Marshall, really um, great content so far today. Let's go to the Apostles' Creed uh, where it says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Would you like to talk about that? Uh, I would love to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for letting me talk about it. Yes. Uh, Because I've just discovered, again, the last few months, the story behind that line. And and for those who are familiar with that creed, it's often recited in church services, read in, in church services. And there really there really is a history behind every line in that creed that you can go find. Um, a variety of, of places will we'll, uh, explain what it is. But this one in particular, I looked into, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Why did that end up in this ancient creed that's still so relevant today, timeless for today. So I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the res- resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. And the forgiveness of sins was was added a little bit later. So there was 
um, years that went by where a version of the creed was used, and then this was added. And what precipitated it was the church in Rome experienced some some really significant persecution. Um, some people were were killed for their faith, not, not a lot, but some were killed. But there was a lot of Christians that were in prison. The emperor basically said, "You need you have to worship the Roman gods. You have to make sacrifices to the to the Roman gods." And so a lot of Christians were imprisoned, books were burned, churches were destroyed, and some were were executed. And then a, a lot of those Christians at that time, this is fourth century in Rome, a lot of them gave in. So they 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 did go make sacrifices to the Roman gods to avoid some of the consequences that were were being threatened at the time. And then a certain amount of time passed and the persecution lessened and all of a sudden Christianity was tolerated again. And as it's tolerated, some of those that walked away from the church and betrayed Jesus and betrayed the church, they came back to church again. And the question became, can Jesus forgive them, even them, even these that have walked away from the church when in in the midst of persecution, betrayed Jesus renounced their faith, sacrificed to these gods. Could they be forgiven? Hmm. And the church decided, yes, we believe in the forgiveness of sins, even these sins. Wow. And it's just amazing. I mean, um, and, and you could think, well, that's, you know, that's extraordinary and that's so far from our circumstance. But that's part of what we were talking about in the first segment is it's not that hard to picture the sim- similar kind of situations today in our, in our stories, in our churches who are the people who are who we are least who we think are least likely to be forgiven or even doubt that they could be forgiven at all given the things that they've done and um this intersects with my my story personally in the story of my grandfather who for the vast majority of his life at least the parts of our life that intersected was one of the worst men that I knew uh angry bitter harsh rude um abusive and it was an it's just an incredibly painful part of our family's story. Uh, vivid memories of, of vivid, painful memories from his life. But the, at the end of his life, my parents loved him faithfully and patiently, and uh, were always ready to forgive at every turn, or at least the turns that I got to see. And so they they were really in a spirit filled way, cared for him all the way through his life. But my mom in particular, my, my dad as well, but my mom in particular would started to read scripture. Towards the end of his life, he was going through uh, a battle with illness, and my mom would read the Psalms to him. And one day, it just clicked for him. Wow. It just clicked. And in a 24-hour period, he was a different man. Wow. And I, I, was, out, I was away at school. I came back. And just wanted to visit him one more time because he was battling cancer and, and died several months later. And I walked into the room and his body was so frail that it was, it was barely recognizable uh, from, from the illness. But, but his face was radiant. Wow. I've, I've never, I, I still to this day can picture it. I knew before he said a word that this man was not the same man that I had known my whole life. And it was true. He was a kind man. He, gentle. He asked my. He would ask my mom to read scripture rather than allowing her to. Sometimes, uh, I firmly believe that Jesus forgave my grandfather despite a lot of evil that he did over the years. That he forgave him, and that I'll see him. and And so I, I look at that story, and a lot of people, and even people in my family, really struggle to forgive him. But I look at that. I say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. 
And I believe that were it not from uh, apart from Christ, that's who I would be. And, that, and, and I would incur the same judgment that he would have if he would not have believed and repented. So this story, you know, now, what, almost 2,000 years old about this line, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins, it intersects with each of us. None of us deserves the forgiveness that we receive from Jesus. And so all of us should, should tremble as we, we say that line, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. But then all of us know people uh, for whom we may have wanted to give up. We may have wanted to say, I don't, I don't think he can be forgiven. I don't think she can be forgiven. Or we know people who, who are in the throes of bitterness or holding a grudge that's really consuming for them. And so we get to be the people that come and say, I believe in mm-hmm. the forgiveness of sins. Oh. Listener jumped in with this question, Marshall. If I understand you correctly, we bring the situation to God and confess our forgiveness regarding the matter, even if the offender actually doesn't seek our forgiveness. This keeps us in right standing with God. And when they seek forgiveness, we accept it, allowing them to be directly forgiven by us. That, that sounds right to me. Yeah. We, we kept talking at the break about uh, about that particular yeah. point. But I think we we can extend forgiveness. We are ready, ready to forgive where we can relinquish any bitterness or grudge we hold and, and the forgiveness will be complete when they accept it and, and repent is, is the way I understand scripture. And so uh, we want to do as much as possible to make peace. And we want to do as much as possible to get out from the, under the, the bondage of bitterness and grudge. And we want before the Lord to say, I am just as you have forgiven me as Ephesians, um, Ephesians, what is it, 4? Um, be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Um, that's the kind of spirit we want to have. So we want to go to God and say, you've forgiven me far more than this. I'm ready to forgive. And then we pray, Lord, soften their heart. Bring them to repentance. Allow this forgiveness to be completed. One of the things that and we just talked about this in the last hour where we're referring to Moses and there's this incident where God tells him to throw the staff down and it turns into a snake. And it says that, you know, Moses runs from it. So I have a lot more in common with Moses than I realize he's afraid (laughs) of snakes. So it's that it reminds me. And then God says to, you know, go pick the snake up. I'm going, no, no, no. I've had enough of the snake thing. No more snake. That'd be my thought, right? But God's telling me to do it, so I do it. So a lot of us have this desire to do it, but it's picking up the snake that's hard. Sometimes the hardest part is being in a situation or an environment where you can start the forgiveness process. Yeah. That's a toughie. It is hard. Because you want to do it, but you, you, you don't know the time, the place, the, you know, how it's going to be received. I know it's, you know, you don't have to, you can't care about that. Your job is to give the, the, the apology. But I think sometimes people are stuck in that. What's my next step, even though I want to do it. Yeah. And the, the next step is going to be different in different relationships. It's going to depend on the, the length of history with this person and when the offense was. But I do think if, um, one of the principles in a lot of areas of life that I lean on is lean on those who know you best, love you most, and who are willing to tell you when you're wrong. And that's what the kind of advice I would give to someone who says, I don't know what to do next in this particular relationship is go to the Lord, pray about it, try to discern what's a loving step I could take to communicate my readiness to forgive, and then go to another brother or sister and say, here's what I'm thinking. What do you, Mm. does that sound loving to you? Does that sound wise to you? And, and see what they say. And, and I think in the vast majority of cases, if you find a friend who loves you 
a lot, knows you well, and will tell you when they're wrong? Do they have any history of telling you when you're wrong, or do they just pat you on the back with everything that you say or want to do? Find someone who's willing to tell you that you're wrong, and then share with them what you want to do and, and have them speak into it and help you discern what the next step would be. Mm, it's really good. It's really good. I, you know, it's an important topic. I'm never tired of talking about it. It's so critical in our lives. And when you point out that it's spiritual warfare, it's a good reminder we don't want to be outwitted by Satan ever. That's right. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Marshall, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I love being here. I hope you'll have me, hope you'll have me back. You can go back anytime you want. Yeah. Next time, bring a latte for me. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's right about the time of day where I could use a latte. And That's I prefer right. a small one with um, skim milk. Okay. Yeah, I'll remember that for right. sure. All right. Can I leave you with one verse? Please. Micah 7, 8, and 9. And this is just, uh, this is especially for someone, if you are in, in the throes of sin in the last, just recently, even today or this week, you've given into some sin and you're feeling hopeless. Uh, Micah 7, 8, and 9. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment, not against me, but for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. All right. Thank you so much. We'll be right back with our two. Dr. David Clark is our guest for the Sunburn series. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.